Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 102. And in this Weekly Word Podcast, we talk a lot about ultra-endurance training, ultra-endurance events, race prep, nutrition, all the work required to go into bringing forth the best athletic version of yourself in order to bring forth the best overall version of yourself into this world of health and fitness, endurance training, and overall the balance of it all with regards to family and work and how we all went pro in something other than endurance sports. And so while still scratching that itch, for lack of a better term, of wanting to be curious of what you're capable of, how long and how far you can go, what your endurance self can do, and how you can be out in nature and live it and feel it and um, appreciate it and go long in it and connect with yourself in it. That's part of this entire podcast and a lot of things we talk about. And we dive into how to train for them, what the mindset needs to be, being an athlete versus just exercising and so forth. And with that also comes a lot of discussion around how to not only fuel yourself for the events and during training and in your day-to-day life, but also how to strength train, core, all kinds of ways for you to be a better athlete inside and out. And that's below the shoulders. We talk a lot about the mental training and the mindset we want to have towards this and also understanding why we're doing this. And That brings me to sort of the lead in to the first part of today. And that is a letter I wrote to Rich, Rich Roll, a couple months ago after I was on his podcast. And he had asked me a question about how I've transformed as an athlete who is very rigid and very focused towards outcomes. And I knew the journey and enjoyed the experience of the training, but it was always with an intention of an outcome in mind. And not necessarily always a result. I was able to get away, get away from that pretty early on because I realized early on, especially in my swimming life, that that's something I don't control. Who shows up and what the others will do in their training and performance. But how I showed up and how I wanted to improve and doing the times that I wanted to do, I very early on learned that I am in control of and staying focused and being driven towards that. But over the years, I've changed. And with that change has become a noticeable change from my athletes who've commented on it, from Rich who's commented on it, who is my athlete, but also that I've noticed about myself and that I'm interested in about myself. And so when Rich asked me on the podcast a couple months ago, where is this coming from and why and where does it um, stem from? I gave him an answer, but the days and weeks leading, uh, not leading up, post that podcast and post visiting with him and hanging out with him and spending some time, I thought more about it. And I also received an email or two from an email from athletes of mine and one, a listener who talked about where did this, why the change, where did it come from? It's pretty um, remarkable. And not from a compliment standpoint, but it's interesting to observe from um, Olympic athlete, high level um, in triathlon as well, and um, always having that sort of achievement sitting in my back pocket to 
somebody who is completely more spiritual, um, holistic about this entire training, endurance, lifestyle approach. And so I tried to capture my thoughts in a letter. At first, it wasn't going to be a letter. At first, it was just capturing my thoughts and wanting to follow up with Rich and give him a more detailed answer. I felt I was, I owed him that. And I'm not sure why I felt I owed him that, but it left me, um, not empty, but it left me curious to put on paper why, not only did I feel the need to follow up, but why it is, or a deeper understanding of why these things have become important to me, why I shifted my perspective to a more spiritual approach to this. And one thing that does not come out in the letter, as I call it, is how this is fundamentally something that I'm very curious about. Um, I'm learning and reading a lot about the aspect of spirituality and how it comes out, comes forth in people. I'm learning a lot about the self and the ego and how endurance athletics, athletics, and even more so ultra endurance athletics ties in very closely to it. I learned about it about five, six years ago when I learned more about the flow states and in the book Rise of Superman. And then a variety of other books kept tying into that there are states of the mind and the body and this journey, this spiritual journey called the human experience that we're on, um, how that ties into a variety of different aspects of our brain and our soul and how we can actually become better people. I learned a lot about how people at the end of their lives, what they've recognized and what they want to convey and the things they wish they told their younger self, um, what they appreciate, all those things tie into a common theme. And that's what I've been very, very curious and interested and have had a lot of aha moments about over the last few years of realizing that endurance athletes athletics ties into that. And you have all heard me talk about this. So with that letter, I was trying to capture where it came from, what started it. And I feel pretty good about having captured it back then. I didn't change the letter in the meantime. I would make some changes to it. I continue to grow and learn. And I'm a different person than I was six months ago. And like we all are, right? Um, we all cross that river and that river is continues to flow and we're a different person on the banks of that river and it's different water that we would walk through on our way back through the river. So life is always changing and hopefully we're always progressing. But for that, I wanted to do that brief intro to this letter and a deeper connection onto where this is coming from and why. So I hope you enjoy it. And uh, after that, we'll dive into the regular podcast. Dear Rich, a few weeks ago when we were recording the podcast, you asked me about my transformation, how I evolved from former Olympian to pro triathlete, to dropping references of wilderness therapy, nature, the self, capital S, higher consciousness, etc. Words verging on the spiritual and mystic rigid swimmer, athlete, German, and disciplined to this more empathetic, more spiritual approach, taking the bigger picture into account. 
I was not prepared for the question and gave you a vague answer, one on the spot for the podcast. Yes, what I said was correct. I got knocked on my ass for the first time in my life, the first time things didn't go my way, or the way I thought was the way. Divorce will do that to you. And I did the work, looked at myself, tried to get a better understanding of the world when not looking at it from my, only from my perspective, via the ego, the small self. But I would like to share the deeper, more personal answer. Why? Your question prompted me to crystallize and verbalize my thoughts, and with that, capture a meaningful conversation I've been having inside my head for many months now. It all leads back to over a decade ago when I met Mark Allen. I was fortunate enough to spend some time with him as he coached a friend and a training partner of mine. I call it visiting. Better described as some deeper conversations after a run or bike. I wasn't mature enough to understand the deeper meaning of the things he was conveying, conveying to me, but a few things stuck. One was a quote I've used many times on your podcast. You need to figure out how far back from the finish line your race begins and train from there. That last part, and train from there, I added, since I assumed that that was what he was talking about. I was a young, promising triathlete. He was the grandmaster of them all. Of course he was talking about training and triathlon, right? He had a, had a different way about him. Softer, more observant, tranquil, but intense. His deep eyes had a sense of maturity and wisdom in them. It was as though he was looking at the world through a different lens. While that quote stuck with me, and I repeated it many times over, over many years as I was training for Ironman, it was also his presence and how I felt he looked at me deeper, deeper into me that, I, that also stuck with me. And then I got knocked on my ass, as I mentioned. Having my life get turned upside down was a wake-up call for me. I had an average therapist through the divorce, but he gave us one important piece of advice. Address your issues now. Do the work now. Otherwise, they will creep up and return in your next relationships. I took that advice very seriously as I knew I never wanted to feel like this again. Looking back, I was a self-absorbed jerk. I had never been truly challenged. Life and everything along with it came easy. Today, I observed that I was on autopilot back then. Swimming, school, and soon work. If I applied myself just a bit, things seemed to work out. Not great, but good enough. Then divorce. I couldn't apply myself enough to correct what was below the surface. Even more daunting was that I didn't know what I was looking for, at the surface or below it. I was rudderless, lacking depth, no intention or North Star. I was simply put, confused, conflicted, and immature. You, write, you might remember from your own trauma, still feel it, observe from your own transformation, dealing with your own shit, demons, shadows. It's hard to recognize while in it that there is a new you developing. All I know is that I wanted to be a better person from this personal trauma, trauma, address my issues. I kept reminding myself, shame on me if I don't, didn't grow from this, kick out stronger, take the time to learn from it. 
I started reading, reflecting, journaling, taking, uh, thinking a lot during my training. It was a great time to take on an ultra running advent of 100 plus miles since the training left me on Mount Tam and in the woods for hours upon hours. Time in my head, time to let a lot of things bubble up. Time to allow the books I was listening to, the podcasts I was into to settle into my mind. Time to pause the book to think about the words and the sentences being read to me. Time that allowed me to realize that nature, the outdoors, exercise and an endurance protocol allows for so much healing and self-care. How the time with the self allows for the conversation in our mind, heart and soul to have a daily outlet for daily reflection and the portal to a higher consciousness to have more opportunities to open. And then about two years ago, maybe a bit more, it dawned on me. You need to figure out how far back from the finish line your race begins. This wasn't about racing and triathlon. It was about life. We all have the same finish line. It's called death or the end of this human experience, as I now like to call it. We all end up in the same place. So how far back from that finish line do I want my race to begin? My race is life. The race is life. And what makes a good race? Feeling alive, prepared, fit. Having your vision of the race unfold successfully in front of you. Fully present, deeply connected, awake, aware, fully immersed, self-authoring, writing your story of your life. That is living. At what point will my real life begin? I had moved from a personal crisis into transformation. Mark Twain writes, the two most important days in our lives are the day we are born and the day you find out why. That was it. I started realizing that I was nearing that day on finding out why. The point where my race begins. Until then, I was merely doing junk miles on the treadmill of life. No purpose, no intention, no dedicated outcome, no clarity. It was time for me to start training for my life. It had begun by realizing Mark Allen's words, along with the reading, the reflection, the work. As an endurance athlete, I want this to be a long race to that finish, not a sprint. I continue to train for the races ahead, the trials and tribulations of life. Training requires a, a focus on small improvements, continuous work on growth, applying new principles to see how they work for me, understanding strengths and weaknesses, and very importantly, deliberate, purposeful practice. No longer junk miles. It's what I call intention these days. This is why I approach this coaching and myself differently. Here's your answer. This is what change has changed, what has evolved. I was able to alchemize the trauma of divorce and turn it into a powerful, meaningful, beautiful event in my life. They say you can't change the past. Not true. You can change it by growing from it, by using it as transformation to positive outcomes. It's not about me. It's about the race 
happening around me. Coaching is unlocking a person's potential to maximize their own performance of life. It is helping the athlete learn rather than teaching them. Helping them evolve from junk miles to purposeful practice in their training, in their daily lives, in their approach to their finish line. It is my goal to help more athletes come to understand the race, as did Mark Allen back then with me. Maybe, just maybe, I can build a few more endurance athletes that will avoid a sprint to that proverbial finish line. Well, there you have it. <laughs> it captures a lot of the thoughts really well. And um, I hope I hope it was something that you enjoyed and allows you to better understand where I'm coming from and many of the things that I talk about on this podcast. So what are we going to talk about this week? Well, we have a bunch of uh, topics, a few more emails, and a variety of different follow-up questions too. I talk about the five by one mile repeats and not forgetting something there with how we want to follow up with it, how we want to use the data, and how we don't want to take it too specifically about how we want to compile data and gain a better picture of ourselves versus just using one test. I talk about training on a tired body and what to look for. And then I dive into a bunch of emails. We go last man standing events. We go through a variety of training concepts. Um, we talk a little bit about the, the limits of my knowledge and what I know. I talk about showing up, doing your best, and releasing the outcome. Yeah, and uh, we continue just to spread the knowledge of ultra-endurance training and how it can help all of us. I talk about running um, aerobic platforms versus cycling aerobic platforms. So there should be a little bit of something for everybody in here. And um, with that, enjoy this week's podcast. I'm getting a lot of inquiries about the five by one mile repeats that I've posted the test online for on my website, aimcoaching.com. But as I'm doing a lot of people's zones and um, getting more and more of these inquiries with regards to their data, their five one mile repeat times and the heart rate with it, I want to make sure that we understand the background of the test. Because it's basically 10K effort, 90 to 95% effort, I want us to be very uh, careful that we don't take these zones too specific. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that it's a range and it's a good way to narrow down zones and to give us a good inkling, a good idea, a good um, enough specificity towards where we should be training. But it is something that will need to be repeated multiple times in order to really triangulate and narrow down how the body is responding to those zones, how it's repeatable, those tests, and that, that way you gather more and more data in order to see the accuracy of how those zones are working for you. The other piece that I want to remind um, many, many athletes of, and I do this with, I would say, 50% of my athletes, and that is I do the follow-up test from that zones, from those zones in the train in the five by one mile repeats. And what that means is that on the high end of zone three, low end of zone four, currently on the testing, what I'll do is I'll 
uh, have that a difference of five beats. So where zone three ends and zone four begins will be a, a, a no man's land of five beats of heart rate. And in that five beats of heart rate is where I do a follow-up five by one mile repeat. I do that about six to eight weeks later. And I repeat that many times throughout the year. I even do it monthly for some athletes, and I used to do it monthly myself. Now, that gives me a good idea of how I'm absorbing the training at the zones I'm training at, whether in most cases, zone two. And so let's say that range, that number, that five-beat um, window is 145 to 150 heart rate. Well, in six weeks from now, I will do that test, uh, repeat that five by one mile repeats with one minute rest, and I will deliberately do it very, very tight in that 145 to 150 range. And let's say those numbers give me a 7.30 to 7.45 pace, right? Like 7.32, 7.36, 7.34, 7.35, something right there. Well, when I repeat that same test at that same 145 to 150 heart rate, another six weeks later, I'm hopefully seeing those numbers go down. I'm hopefully seeing that move into the 720s or the 17s at that exact same range of heart rate. And importantly, also setting up the training days prior so that they're very similar to the training days now. Usually that's a rest day for me, or it's an easy bike day or an easy swim day. So that again, I can mimic and um, repeat a similar test over and over again. I've done these tests throughout a season, let's say from March all the way until Kona in October, every six weeks or less, even four to six weeks. And I've found that it's been a very good marker of showing and holding and remaining at fitness. Now, there'll be times when I'm tired. I've done a big training block. I'm maybe three, four weeks into some serious volume and I'll try to do that test. And yes, there I'll see the markers of things slowing down or falling off within the five. Maybe the first two are really good or continuing to stay at a number or a pace that I've been holding for, let's say, the last month or two, which is fine. It's not always going to improve. But then my number, mile number three, four, and five, I quickly drop off. Despite holding the same heart rate, I'm just falling off quickly. Now, I know that's not a fitness question. I've been training for six, eight months consistently. I know that's a fatigue question. But all this can be garnered and gathered and understood by having a lot of data points. And in a lot of ways, in my coaching, that's what I'm doing. In my coaching, I am gathering the data points for you, my athletes, and therefore continuously looking and gleaning information and trying to get a good sense of who you are below that, um, in, uh, uh, under that meat suit that we are, right? And how our bodies are responding and how it's all coming together. Now, of course, this isn't the exact science. I don't have you in a lab. I don't have you in a repeatable situation. But again, there's enough data along with how you feel, with power files, with running files, with sleep, with recovery, with past training, how you've past absorbed it, um, 
and your growth in general and field testing and so forth and races to get a better and better picture. And so that's the part I wanted to remind everybody on with the five by one mile repeats. It's just the start of something. It's just a starting point. It's a line in the sand for many of you to start training with a good idea of where your zones may be. Now, I'd like to give myself a lot of credit (laughs) um, of having done so many of these zones and having it verified so often um, with true testing, with lactate threshold testing or VO2 max testing or a variety of other tests, Coggins and so forth, is that these zones that I give you from the five mile, one mile repeat are quite close. They may be off by a little bit, but then there's more of a story to it I've found often. But in general, they are a good start. It saves you all some money from getting tested and then gradually gathering more information as well as confirming it every now and then, maybe twice a year with a true lactate test. That's a great place to be in. So, but again, use it as a line in the sand and use it as your first marker to start gathering more data. So now that we've done the five by one mile repeat, now you can do the follow-up tests at a certain heart rate type range that I talked about. And then using that data more and more and gathering more and more data for your spreadsheet, for your insights, however you capture the data to then glean more and more information about how your training's working and how you're responding and how you're progressing. So that's what I wanted to add. I struggled today at swim practice. Man, I was tired to begin, not sleepy, yawny tired, but even as I was loosening up um, prior on deck, I do some shoulder um, exercises, mobility, less about mobility, more about um, strengthening. And it's very similar to many of my running athletes, the leg blasters that we do. I have this shoulder blasters, shoulder complex that I do, which really activates my shoulders and my back versus um, the wrong muscles for swimming. But anyway, I could tell doing that, that it was already fatiguing me more than usual. And I'm a differently loaded this week on my training, having done a long ride yesterday due to, you know, spring break this week and um, taking my son to Southern California. So I won't be training later in the week. So I've loaded things differently. So it makes sense. I'm probably a little bit not worn down, but no rest days and sort of coming off um, a good 10 day build here. But the reason I'm sharing this is because, yeah, I worked my way through warm up now work my way through some drill sets that we did and then the main set which required some changes in speed you know i knew right away if i tried to dive into this i wouldn't do it as effectively as the desired outcome as the intention of the set and so i spoke to the coach and modified it gently in order to allow myself to warm up into it and Therefore, I still got the outcome of the set, as in um, crescendoing to um, a fast ending of this 2,000-yard set, but also allowing myself to sort of settle into it and find my stroke and reconnect with my body. So I did some pulling and I did some kicking, in, still within the set, but 
highlighting different areas of my freestyle stroke in order to reconnect. And sure, the desired outcome of the set was to set up times and paces early and improve from that. And instead, I gradually set to the same paces and same speed and same best effort late. But I did it at my pace. Now, the, cha the challenge there is twofold. There's two things I want to talk about there that is helpful to everybody. One, understand the desired outcome and how you can still achieve that outcome despite either being off, feeling tired, feeling disconnected, maybe being late um, and having to adjust the set, um, maybe being um, you know short on time like many of you are and so forth. So understand the outcome of the set and then therefore knowing, well, this is what I'm looking to achieve and how can I still achieve that but allowing myself and setting myself up for success. That's the one piece. The second piece here too is many of us in endurance training, and I read this in a lot of logs, talk about um, or recognize that it takes us a while to get into the workout. Not mentally, we're excited to train. Well, not necessarily excited, but we're ready to train. We have the right attitude. We are ready to put forth the right effort but it takes a while to settle in, to find our groove, to connect, to find steady state. And so we've talked about this on the podcast that this is a common theme, theme for when you're doing zone two work. Um, a lot of times it takes the body a while to find um, aerobic effort because of a variety of aspects. One is of course, glycogen is the preferred fuel source always it's faster it's um it hits the muscle site quicker it can be foot pulled from quicker it's more powerful so of course zone three is something you settle into quicker because you get that boost of sugar glycogen quickly and then therefore can find a smooth steady state within three to five minutes um, aerobic fat burning fat oxidation and such takes longer to activate that energy system. There's a variety of steps that need to take place before that, before the fat burning engine um, takes over, to before that energy system is the primary source of fuel and energy for your output. And so, yes, it takes a while for us to settle in, but I'm talking about something different. I'm talking about because we're fatigued, because we're lethargic, because we have a load in us. And it is a delicate balance. It is a delicate balance between, am I just doing plenty of miles or miles just to do them, or hours or volume, and just creating fatigue like that? Mm. Not really always the ideal outcome. There's sometimes we need that because it mentally makes us stronger to train on a tired body and then for us to draw back and remember how effective we still were despite being tired so that in a race, whether a triathlon at an Ironman on the run or late in a 100-mile run or late in a big endurance event, that despite being tired, you have something to draw on in your memory banks and in your confidence that you know I was still able to perform that day. So if I'm feeling similar, I'm able to perform now. It's in me somewhere. But that so there's that one side of that balance. The other side is 
um, overdoing it and too much training and no value. So we, we keep it careful there. But the other part of the balance too is there is, once we shake it, once we settle in, once we let go of trying to search for pace, feel, um, watts, whatever, effort, that the, it comes to us more naturally, that we can ramp it up. Now, it makes the workout session longer because if once we find it, we then start our intervals, we then start our intended workload, our desired outcome, our prescription. So it means that the workout starts later and takes longer. I get that, and that's complicated. But um, you are still getting the work done, right? And if we know the desired outcome, and if we know the prescription, just because it takes longer, we can still have a very high quality, good, effective workout, which many of you do comment on afterwards in the log. Wow, it took me a while to get there, but then I had a great workout. Recognize this, that this is very much part of endurance athletics and endurance training, and especially in ultra endurance. It takes longer and longer to find the work, but that to find the work, meaning to find the quality out of the fatigue, the fog of fatigue, right? And that is truly where we don't allow the signals body to brain, but that we snap out of it and ask their signals to go brain to body for the warm-up for most of the session when there's no nothing prescribed body to brain but then you want to have an opportunity a mindset a switch that you flip um, that when you say okay it's time to do some work here i need to do 20 minutes at zone three i need to do three or four minutes at zone four with a follow-up at this or high cadence work or standing or a 20-minute climb or running at certain paces or hill repeats or swimming doing some intervals and harder swims and sets that's when you go brain to body that's when you override the system and being able to uh, manipulate that switch that mindset that direction of um directive right um that becomes very important for you as an athlete and you don't want to do that all the time you don't want to always and that's where you know you're overreaching you're overtraining if you're constantly having to go brain to body even at the start and brain to body is starting to fatigue itself out that you almost don't have the cognitive ability, freshness, energy um, to send brain to body, that's when you need to back off. That's when you need to let your coach know something's not right or I'm too tired. Um, but it's okay that it takes a while to warm up into it. For example, I had a great workout as of about 30 minutes into the swim today. I needed to sort of settle in and not force it, not push it, not look at paces. I turned off looking at the pace clock and I knew I'll, I'll get plenty of quality out of this workout. So I did the set and then on the back end, added another component to the set to make sure I had the same stimulus. It's an, it was an extra round that I did and I did that at a very high quality, high intensity in order to simulate what I had missed or what I'd already gradually settled into. So I did the main set, got the fatigue, got the high speed out of it, and then did another round because I was tired and I had a similar adaptation. 
And it was a great workout. I can feel good leaving that and, and having gotten the prescription of the workout out of it. And the same is what I want for all of you. Know your outcomes, know the balance, and know when to go mind-body or body-mind. Okay? All right. I received an email here the other day that um, actually is pretty interesting. And uh, I only had a chance to scan it, but I knew I would save it for the podcast. Hi, Chris, a quick expression of gratitude for your podcast and the wealth of information you share. Greatly appreciated. I'm training for the North Fork Trail 50 Mile Ultra happening on June 1st and have a couple of questions. One, I've been pretty heavily Z2 training the last few months. However, mostly on roads during the bolder winter weather. And I'm just now getting to some mountainous trail runs. My question is on race day, what is the running strategy, if any, different? Meaning, should I predominantly run at Z2, or is it okay to shift to the, propor- the proportion higher? This is a question I receive a lot from people, that they think, just because we're training at Zone 2, means we're racing at Zone 2. That is definitely not the case, and racing becomes a different question with regards to heart rate zones. Now, depending on the length of the race, the more, I would say, heart rate zones become um, a floor and a ceiling of a range that you want to sort of be in. But knowing that due to terrain and conditions and temperatures and environment, that might be affected. Now, of course, a shorter race, you're blowing those heart rates through the roof and not even paying attention to it. And the longer the day, of course, you want to manage your energy. And heart rate is a great way to sort of help you manage your energy over, in this case, a 50-miler, over 10 hours, let's say. Let's just use that as the number, 10 hours, 10 to 11, 12 hours. So if we start off completely on feel, oh, it felt easy for a 50-miler, then of course, um, Oftentimes, because we're fresh and rested, um, the heart rate jumps too high. So we do want to put a governor on it, a a, a ceiling, a cap. Um, But no, zone two is not how we want to end up running, um, especially for a race. And so here's the big question. Well, then how come we're training zone two? One, the big thing there is we're building a bigger aerobic platform. Over 20 years of coaching endurance athletes now across all spectrums from professionals to beginners, excuse me, to events from Ironman all the way to multi-day stage races to climbing mountains to doing all kinds of crazy stuff, bad water, um, you know, you name the adventure, rowers, long distance swimmers, it all ends up being the same phenomenon. And that is just because you trained at zone two doesn't mean zone three and zone four aren't still available and don't feel great come race day. And that's not because we spent 20% of our time at zone two, uh, above zone two. That's not because we spent 5% at zone four and 15% of the time at zone three, whatever. No. And sure, we want to get some race specificity going in the six, eight, 10 weeks prior to the event, of course. But zone two creates a great platform from which we are fresh enough, strong enough, fit enough, fat oxidation, well enough, um, aerobic capacity, energy usage, right? Um, 
well enough to go long distances at a little bit higher heart rate. Now, that doesn't mean zone four for 10 to 12 hours, but it definitely means you're able to handle a higher heart rate load. For example, most of my athletes that are pretty well tested, um, I would probably need more information than justified by one mile repeats to really give this strategy. But those that are blood lactate tested, and I have a test or two, maybe three even, yes, they do primarily a lot of their training at zone two. We put in a bunch of zone three marathon goal pace training. The two seem to settle in together. For many athletes, I actually put in for their marathon training some time at zone three and then right into goal pace. And often they find the two don't separate much. But based off the lactate curve and the ideal training scenarios, they're racing at upper zone three, low zone four. And they're always surprised to say, when I put that in their race strategy, what, that hard? But I haven't trained there. But yet it seems not only if I didn't give them that strategy and they just raced on feel and confidence, as well as when I did, it, the heart rate just settles there anyway. That seems to be the proportionate effort for three-ish hours, three to four hours. Now, I always say, you know, the last four, five, six miles of a marathon are on you. Um, not that much, three, four miles of a marathon on a new, those are will and desire and, you know, how badly do you want it? But to get them through 22 miles and they feel connected with that power and that push, despite not having done that much work at those zones, that's the fun. I also see it a lot when athletes are big in a zone two phase, getting ready for something like a 50 miler. And then they jump into a local 10K or half marathon. And they're like, wow, I was able to sustain zone four for an hour and a half, hour and 45 for two hours. It's exactly that. The platform is there and it still allows you to go to those other zones. So a long answer to the question, um, I would give yourself some ranges. So depend on depending on how hilly the course is, I don't know the North Fork Trail 50 Mile Ultra and what kind of terrain changes that involves, but I would look at where my heart rate settles and sort of stays after the first two-ish hours or hour-ish, and then sort of give myself a range around there that's pretty conservative. Um, trail racing, I often don't use heart rate too much as a guide early on because again it's such a long day and there's going to be so many different experiences and emotions and therefore heart rate changes and reactions and low energy and high energy and big distance between age and, and small distance and hydration and fueling and so forth that I often say you know and I've said this on this podcast before try to start way easier than you think you should be. So if you're running and you're starting at an easy pace and you say, this seems easy enough, um, back off even a little bit more. Because like I've given on the race strategy, a third should feel too easy, a third of the race should feel just right, and then the last third should be a struggle. And not a struggle because you're out of fitness, but you have to sort of work and really stay focused and leg turnover and stay true to form and technique and try to hang in there the heart rate usually seems to balance equal for all three phases. So I hope that answered it. Um, um, second, I'd, love, I'd also love to hear a couple of simulation ideas in preparation for my event last weekend, March 23 and 24. 
Um, I ran 26.3 Saturday and then a 10-mile tempo run on Sunday. My legs felt great all weekend. On Monday, I was a little, I was okay to hit the trails Tuesday. Um, yeah, so simulations for 50 milers are very much similar to that. Like, um, again, I like to compact the race distance in a shorter amount of time. Um, I have an athlete this weekend doing a simulation for a 50 mile race. And again, we can't, I'm, you know, this is that typical disclaimer. I'm not a doctor and I don't play one on the internet, right? Please understand that this athlete of mine has done the work leading up to it and a gradual build and the strength and the speed and the components to fit in this. But for example, this is not for everybody. He's doing a 10 mile run on Friday evening. He's done a 20 mile run on Saturday morning. He's doing another 10 mile run on Saturday evening. And he's doing another 10 to 12 mile run, 12 to 14 mile run on Sunday morning. So we're putting 52 to 54 miles in a matter of 44 hours, 42 hours. So again, that requires a big level of fitness and it requires a level of coming in somewhat rested, not completely fatigued. We don't want to create injury and coming out of that with the confidence and the ability to take a full rest week, very light activity really pulling back the hours so that fully gets absorbed because it's still 52 miles in a matter of two-ish days and therefore it requires a bunch of recovery. So even this with the 26.3, a two and then a three and then a 10 mile, that's 33, that's 36 miles in a matter of, you know, 48 hours, I would be smart on recovery. You can do that format again. You could even do 30 and 12, I bet you. But give yourself some time. I'm working up to peak mileage during April and into early May and appreciate any tips. So yeah, the peak mileage there, you maybe do 30, 32 on a Saturday and follow it up with a 12 or 14, right? You don't need to do more. And one thing that I often say to athletes, and I said to this athlete doing my simulation this week, not this one from the email, but my athlete, um, like the important thing is to hear to understand why we're breaking it up like this. It's so that the miles that you are doing, you're not really fresh, but you're not just slogging along. You're not in bad form. You're not just getting through it. You're, you're not fatigued and yawny and tired and miserable and just getting the miles in because that's the miles. We're splitting it up so that all the miles you're doing are truly running miles, runnable miles, where your body is running effectively versus slogging through it with bad form, heavy hips, not light on the feet, heavy on the feet, just sort of shuffling. That we don't need to do. And so I would say to you too, in this case, being focused on knowing that the tech, the running that you're doing, 26.3 or 10 miles, is still going to be good form and good technique. So I think that answers both these questions, but they're good, good inputs to, to work through. All right, let's dive into another email here. Um, hi, Chris. First off, thank you for all the work you do and into creating the podcast. After listening for a little over a year, I've definitely learned a lot and I'm really looking forward to trying out some new things I've learned over the coming season. This was sent to me back in early March. I've since a couple years back been a devout practitioner of zone two training 
and one of the first weekly word podcasts I ever heard took a deep dive into Zone 2. Naturally, I was hooked, so thanks. I'll begin with my two questions and then provide some background to my situation. So if you ever have a chance to give some pointers about this subject, it can be quick, general, or longer and specific. Question, how well does cycling fitness transfer over to running fitness for longer endurance events? If I correctly understood what you have talked about earlier on the podcast, the heart really doesn't know the difference between the two, which makes sense. Which got me thinking, um, however, was the transferability of muscular resilience under long, under long periods, over long periods, say for six plus hours events. All right. So please understand that there's two types of fitness that are going on in our body. One is the strength and the fitness of the heart. And the other, of course, is a muscular fitness with regards to the activity that you're doing. And the muscular fitness is the one we're more familiar with building up and creating a platform for. That's the one we feel aches and tightness from, fatigue from. Um, Rarely do we feel a tired heart. Now, when you're deep into some ultra endurance training, yes, you do feel a tired heart. And there's some different markers for that. But in this case, um, what we're looking at is muscular training and aerobic heart rate, um, excuse me, um, vascular training. And so, yes, what I constantly say is that the heart doesn't know. And for most athletes, for most athletes out there in the endurance world, because they have not been doing said activity, running, swimming, biking, rowing, kayaking, um, any type of endurance, hiking, um, trekking, climbing, <laughs> for um, any type of uh, longer period, meaning since they've been children, it means that the heart is usually underdeveloped compared to the endurance activity that they're doing. So for example, somebody who's been swimming since they're three, four years old, somebody who's been running in an organized fashion, in a training fashion, since they're 10, 11, 12 years old, someone who's been cycling all their lives since their teens, their heart has developed for this activity, an aerobic endurance activity, for many, many, many years as the body has developed and gone through different stages of maturity. It has remained active and trained and very strong with regards to pumping Um, oxygen via the blood to the working muscles. So knowing that many of these athletes have a very strong heart, um, it's focused more on building a strong muscular platform in order to do said activity. For example, because of all my years of swimming, my heart is very, very strong But in order to build up cycling and running tolerances and abilities and durability, um, I had to shift my training early on in the triathlon years so that I could actually do the running and cycling over long periods and hours. So there, the argument of, well, the heart knows, yes, could I go at an easy effort for a long period of time? I could. But in order to perform, I had to build a muscular structure that supports the heart. Now, many, many masters athletes that that decide to take on ultra endurance and endurance events later on in life, meaning, you know, post 20s, early 30s, um, 
after that, meaning um, it, it, what we see in most physiological scenarios is that their muscular structure is developed well enough for shorter activities, Olympic distance triathlon, half marathon, 10K runs, things like that. But their heart is underdeveloped because they haven't done the zone two aerobic training, miles of trials, trials of miles. And so <clears throat> the focus usually in the endurance training world is to develop that heart muscle. In most cases, I would say 95% of athletes in this endeavor are not um, endurance athletes from um, their original sport that they've been doing actively all their lives. So as we try to develop the heart to keep up with the muscles, it's a different focus. Now, how does this display itself, by the way? Well, many of you know from testing, not field testing, but more lactate threshold testing, but also in your own observations, for example, on the bike. When you're riding your bike up a hill, muscularly, you feel good, you feel powerful, you feel connected, but your heart rate goes through the roof. Your muscles are stronger. They can handle the load of going uphill for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, even up to 45 minutes an hour. But the heart is not be able to keep up with the demands of oxygen to the working muscles. And therefore, it is working way harder, beating way faster, trying to keep up with the power of the muscles. Other way around, if the heart rate stays low and you, you're doing the big gear work, right? That's what big gear work is, keeping the heart rate a little bit lower because your cadence, your turnover on the hill is lower and you're developing muscular power. That's how you're keeping the heart connected with the output of the power. Can you go faster on the bike? Can you push more power? Yes, but you want to keep the two in some sort of, not equilibrium, but in relationship with each other as you climb. So um, what's the display of the other way around? Well, the other way around is that you can run pretty hard or ride pretty hard, and your heart rate just doesn't increase because... Your muscles are fatiguing before your heart does. And for example, I've seen that a lot with my own training early on in my years of endurance. I used to be able to ride and run for hours and my heart rate would never go over 120, maybe occasionally after a long climb or a push into the 130s, but never much higher. My heart was incredibly powerful, but I would fatigue at the end of the ride muscularly, fatiguing meaning that my muscles couldn't expand and contract as effectively and contract be being where you usually feel a muscle fatiguing. And so I would be tired after a long ride despite heart rate being average 112. I could barely walk, not barely, but I would feel it walking down a flight of steps. And But yet the effort level of the ride was very easy. <laughs> My puppy's going crazy. Um, so anyway, so that's what we're talking about, developing the heart and developing the muscles. So back to this question is understanding, well, what is it I need to develop? And hence why I often talk on this podcast for the majority. And the majority is developing the heart to um, catch up with the muscular structure most of us already have, or which is most of us is good enough. <laughs> Keep that in mind too. In order to be able to put forth uh, the endurance effort, event, 
race that you want to, most of you have enough muscular power to do the event. It's about keeping, getting the heart strong enough to also do the, um, the endurance event. And so this does not tie in necessarily, it correlates, but doesn't necessarily tie in directly to why strength training isn't necessarily as important because this is more a conversation around understanding that let's use the, <laughs> hold on just a second. Yes, the puppy's going bananas. Um, so this is more a big picture question of, am I maximizing the body I have currently? So that ties into, I have enough muscular strength and power and of a platform to get me through an endurance event pretty well. I mean, given the strength and the muscles we have, is it good enough to do everything we would like it to do in an endurance event? In most cases, yes. Do I have the heart power, the heart um, strength, the fitness to do something? That is often the one we have to build up because it can't sustain zone four, zone five heart rate for 10 plus hours. And then tie into a truly strength and chassis, integrity and durability, joints, connections, how the body is firing is also an endurance question. But overall, if you take a look at your body and think of it in the form of what you have, how do we optimize, maximize it for what it already delivers? And in most cases, that's a question of heart. Um, it's less about adding more fitness. It's less about adding more strength. It's less about um, trying to put more components of training onto our schedule. It's more about optimizing what we currently already have. And heart is in most cases the most important thing there. So back to this question is, Yes, if your heart is strong enough for a six plus hour event, the getting the muscular platform, the, mus the skeletal muscular structure ready for a six plus hour biking event, that's less of a complicated buildup because the cycling fitness, um, how well does cycling fitness transfer over to running fitness? This is a question then of just building up to three, four, five, six hour runs. And what I talk about on the 50K training plan that you know, I would probably go about it in that respect. But again, this depends on the person, depends on the years you've been doing it, and depends on what's truly stronger. Um, back to the original part where I was talking about myself, when I had that type of strong heart, weak muscular structure, I needed a lot of quality, high intensity training in order to bring up my fitness equal to the heart. I needed a lot of power work. I needed a lot of steady state, higher wattage intervals. I needed a lot of explosive hill climbing. I needed a lot of strength work, which I didn't do, <laughs> in the gym. I needed things like that to sort of break out of the mold of the diesel engine and give it some speed and some um, flexibility to do different effort levels and intensities, especially when you're racing in the pro field. You have to keep in mind when they go, you got to go. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to stay here at my wattage and see how it shakes out. Well, <laughs> the race is quickly over then, you know, whether that's in a marathon, whether that's in an Ironman, whether that's in a pool or an um, open water swim. It's You need to be able to take those surges 
on and be able to withstand them. And that's the fun part too of racing, but it's also the, um, the, the, the strategy in many cases in the pro field that they surge and pull back and surge and, and, and stay on the surge for a long period of time to see who's going with them. Who's going to race this race today? Who has the willpower, the fitness, and the strength, um, mental strength and physical strength, to go with all these surges? Because I'm feeling, let's say, if that's a, you know, a top level pro, I'm feeling good today, and um, let me see what these guys got or girls, right? And so, um, yeah, I hope that sort of highlights more why I say that the heart doesn't know the difference. That's also um, quite often when athletes get mm, uh, not stressed, but they wonder, well, you know, I'm doing this, I'm going for a hike, I'm going, I'll, I'll be on the road, I'm just going to be able to run or swim. That's where I say, well, the heart doesn't know the difference. Allow it to be aerobic for 45 to 60 to 90 minutes a day. And then when you get back to your um, training routine, routine, we can get back to the specifics of the event you're training for. But when you're in an environment that you can't ideally train, it's a great time to keep in mind, am I doing something aerobically for my heart um, to continue to develop that, um, that network of um, strong capillaries and um, delivery of oxygen to the working muscles? As you're in zone two, as you're developing mitochondria, as you're developing those networks and those pathways to the working muscles, that happens at those low heart rates as we've discussed before. And so you're, you're only helping yourself. But um, there's a lot we can do when we're going slow and it is helping us. So, um, all right, so... Uh, Let's go into the background here. So that was the question. How well does cycling fitness transfer over to running fitness for longer endurance events? So heart, yes. Um, all right. If Kirk, um, what got me thinking, however, was the transferability of muscular resilience under longer periods, say for six plus hour events. So the other thing to keep in mind there is um, as you build up your running volume, because you're looking to transfer over to running fitness. So I'm guessing that you're getting ready for a running event. Um, maybe we'll see that in a moment. I would continue to keep the biking somewhat active because that keeps your heart going and allows you to keep the volume per week of where you're working on heart strength and aerobic strength, um, meaning your heart pumping. <laughs> um, but gradually bringing up the pounding on the legs of running, which that durability takes a while to build up. Um, background, I'm currently 28 years old, living in the north of Sweden. It's a long winter. I got into endurance and ultra running about five, six years ago without having a background in running, swimming, cycling from my youth. So there you go, right? There's where we probably have the strength, but we're missing the deeper zone two, a strong heart to deliver for many hours. By adopting a mainly zone two based training regimen, I managed to pretty quickly complete some races and events I previously thought was crazy, but always wanted to try while never encountering any injuries that impacted my training. So yes, also keep in mind a key word there is you were able to complete them. When we're looking to optimize what we're uh, capable of, that athletic best version of ourselves inside us somewhere, and trust me, 
it's inside us somewhere. That's part of the task of my coaching. And a lot of what I talk about is to bring out that best current athletic version of yourself out of inside of you somewhere and connecting that to the event that you're doing, the adventure that you're looking to complete um, and continuing to harness what's inside of you already. And so often athletes think of it, they need to add training. They need to do more. They need to incorporate, like I said on the other podcast, um, this type of training. And I saw somebody doing this and that coach recommends this and we should be doing this. Let's work on maximizing who the athlete is within you already. And that's physiological, that's mental, and that's spiritual. And getting that to the surface and shedding the rest of the noise in order to first optimize what you currently already are versus trying to change too much, add too much. And a lot of that also ties into the best athletic version of yourself is so you can train, but if you're not fueling yourself and taking care of that best athletic version, that version of yourself inside of you, then again, via nutrition and hydration and sleep and recovery, it's not going to be able to shine as well. Um, I, I liken it to a lot of those memes we currently see on the web where you see like um, uh, this overweight person and they, they just sort of show a, um, a, a, a outline of it. And then in that outline, they show a, you know, a fit, lean, skinny person running, right? And they show how um, obesity in the U.S. is an issue and so forth, and they just show the difference between the two bodies. That's what I like in the athletic version being inside of you. Let's maximize and find that and let that come forward and shine before we try to do too much in our daily routine and um, training structure or phases or big picture yearly plan in order to um, uh, because that often adds too much, too much um, overwhelming with regards to all these things I should be doing, need to be doing. Oh my God, I don't even want to try that. That sounds like too much. Instead, let's focus on bringing what you currently have already forward. Less about adding instead of optimizing. So uh, two, I know this is a long email that I'm talking a lot around. Um, the last few years I've been doing trail and ultra races of various distances and terrains with the longest being 18 hours on a mountainous trail. That's awesome. So clearly your heart is quickly catching up over the last few years, five, six years, you're 28. The fact that you started this at 22, 23, that's pretty impressive because that will pay a big dividend in your thirties. Um, the feeling and confidence you get from 18 hours straight running while actually feeling good and strong, or at least 16 of those hours, is truly addicting. Yes, and that's what I talk about with our connection to nature and our deeper spiritual self and something deeper that comes forward um, at that point. And Frederick, that's the person's name, I'm sure even in your 28 years, and um, that's pretty young, um, you noticed after 12, 13, 14, 15 hours how things come forward in your mind um, that is hard to achieve in any other way. 
um, in any other type of activity or endurance activity. Sure, a deeper meditation, maybe. Um, what I've been reading about with regards to holotropic breathing, maybe. Um, psychedelics have a very similar effect, but when you're that far into an endurance event and um, you've broken yourself and your body and your mind is fatigued and therefore the ego um, is also fatigued and, and shuts or, or quiets, um, the true self and the consciousness truly can come to play. And it is that feeling I believe we are addicted to. Of course, the fitness and the health brings forth a lot of um, um, physical reactions, um, adrenals and so forth, dopamine, all that. Um, but I also think from a spiritual connection, that is something we get quite uh, profoundly curious about. And I think a big part of ourselves and our brain wants to uh, explore that more. And please let me know if how many of you listening have also or agree with this or feel this because this is a big part of um, not theory, but um, validation in a lot of my reading that I'm getting more and more of, of how ultra endurance events have a way of affecting the mind and the consciousness um, in a way very similar to those other um, methods. Uh, where was I? <laughs> Early autumn, a friend and I decided to sign up for 70.3 in July this summer, which will be my first real triathlon. I've been practicing my swimming a lot the last 10 months to the point that I'm feeling fairly confident in my ability to satisfactorily, <laughs> I like that word, satisfactorily get through the 1.9 kilometer swim. During the autumn and winter, I have gotten a lot of Z2 hours on the trainer. Yes, North Sweden, <laughs> and measurable results I see in the wattage I put out have um, I put out have very considerable, probably increased. Um, during the last five months, I've been focusing on getting comfortable with longer bike rides and swimming. I haven't been doing a lot of distance running, at least compared to what I used to do. When I do run, however, for example, twenty to thirty minute transition run or a forty-five to sixty minute easy run, I still f feel strong and connected. Good, good, good. After developing my aerobic base the last months, mainly with swimming and biking, I'm planning a, to bit by bit start sprinkling in some harder efforts, correct? What I'm still unsure of is how I should approach the ratio of cycling running during my, the coming months. I feel like I could simply get through 13 mile run following a 56 mile bike pretty much any day of the week, but my, my goal isn't just to get through, but to do it strong and feeling good after a solid effort on the bike. Well, a lot of this will be answered in this next training um, phase uh, description update with regards to training for a 70.3. But I will give it a whirl here to jump ahead a little bit. Um, with a fair amount of cycling miles under you, yes, you do want to sprinkle in more and more steady state. But you also want to do a little bit more what I call under over stuff. And that is when you um, keep it in zone two or go way above race watts or desired or intended race watts and um, do some zone four work and gradually increase that time. Um, we also talked a little bit on past podcasts about how as you move into this training specificity phase, uh, race specificity 
phase, you want to decrease the zone two, probably to about 60% gradually from 80 to 70 to 60, excuse me, and then increase your zone three and zone four time from 20 to 30 to 40% for the week. Um, and similarly, also for the running, that will be important. Um, I would surely uh, continue to stay connected with a transition run once a week. Um, if you feel that that is a limiter, I would do it twice a week. But most athletes are surprised that they're fine with transition runs. And as a matter of fact, many, many athletes over the years of endurance training and coaching, I've found feel more comfortable running off the bike than just running um, straight cold. Um, they say they can find their legs and their pace and they run better and faster and more relaxed after a two, three hour bike than if they just go out and run 90 minutes as is. So when you are in that place, that means you're clearly fine with running off the bike, those first two, three, four, five K. Now keep in mind, triathlon running only comes into um, difficulty where it becomes truly a fitness question as of the second half of the run. So I would simulate some, let's say, 40-mile bike and, uh, you know, 8-mile run. And then I would simulate a 40-mile bike and, let's say, a 10-mile run. Just to make sure, and not hard, but more just that you're keeping your durability and that what's happening to your heart rate and pace on the back half of that run, uh, miles 4 through 8 or 5 through 10. And then with regards to running to uh, cycling to running ratio, you know, you could you could go by it truly mathematically, which is you have to figure for a uh, five hour day, let's say if, if you're that fast of an athlete, you're going to swim 30 minutes, you're going to bike two and a half minutes, you're going to run an hour and a half. So that's, um, that's a 430. Okay, so maybe um, 240 and uh, 140 and 40, um, well, that relationship gives you how much you're cycling and how much you're running and how much you're swimming. And you can expand that out into a 10-hour week or a 12-hour week or a 16-hour week. But to me, I've always been a believer in cycling heavy and maintaining run fitness. So for 70.3, I don't think you need much more than one long run a week, um, you know, 75 to 100 minutes. Um, and then um, one focused speedier run a week um, where you're doing some quality and some leg turnover work. Um, you're doing that one transition run a week. So now we're already at two and a half-ish, almost uh, three-ish with a transition run, maybe about three and a half. And then maybe another easier, lighter run after a swim per week or something like that. So nothing dramatic over four hours per week. Um, that's plenty because if you're doing seven, eight hours of cycling, then, um, you know, seven plus that four is 11 plus two hours of swimming. It's a 13 hour training week. That's not counting any core or strength work um, or any type of uh, other type of body um, uh, weight or integrity work. So again, so many ways to skin this cat. It's just a question of what works for you, your schedule your life, your background, your strengths, your weaknesses, um, right? So uh, based off of what I'm seeing here, this is a pretty general update. So, all right, I hope that helps. And that brings me to also some, not closing notes, but just some thoughts that I've had over the last 
few days based off of so many of the emails and inquiries and updates I get. And that is, I receive a lot of questions on a lot of different topics, um, from breathing to nutrition approaches. Well, nutrition I actually can talk to Emily about, but um, from exercise physiology to strength training to um, altitude tense to all kinds of questions. And if you're wondering why I'm not answering them, well, because quite honestly, I have opinions about them, but my knowledge in that field to have a um, a good experience and past athletes and a variety of inputs and reading and um, background about it is not deep enough to really share. And um, the reason I, I'm pretty careful with that because I know a lot of what I talk about here um, gets taken seriously by many. Um, and even if it just gets taken seriously by one or two people, <laughs> um, there is some risk involved in that and that I am giving advice or opinions that might not be the healthiest um, for athletes. And so a lot of what I talk about on this podcast is not only that I have 20 plus years of experience in coaching in, but it's also usually pretty conservative with regards to the approach. And I'm not too worried about any type of health or injury implications. Um, because a lot of my approach in general is about how we can do little damage by going too easy, but how we do, um, we risk a lot by going a tick too hard. So, and a lot of my coaching approach revolves around keeping you healthy for consistency. Um, if you're not injured, you can train. If you're training, you create consistency. If you create consistency, you create durability. And when you create durability, you create confidence and your body is recognizing and re creating um, repeatable motions and efficiencies in its activity that allow you to then do it better, faster, stronger, more efficiently. Which then also, that durability keeps you injury, like a higher likelihood of being injury free, which keeps you training, which keeps you consistent, which keeps you more durable. And that circle and that confidence that you're building mentally and that can, those connections that are getting better and stronger and feel more sound physically, all will help you continue in this lifestyle of endurance training and um, endurance racing and adventures and so forth. Um, the, the beauty of all this is our ability to do it for many years and take on adventures and um, satisfy curiosity in things we've always wanted to do. Um, and I know most of us have a draw to the outdoors, to adventures, to um, experiences um, in nature and curiosity out there. And I believe that through consistent training and our endurance um, platform that we're all building always, it, it allows us to actually um, realize some of those curiosities and take them to a new level and do things, whether for ourselves or with our family and our children or friends and adventures. And there are so many things to experience. And I believe it starts with that consistency and health and durability and you continuing to grow from there. 
So, and with that, you know, a lot of people are just starting out in endurance training. And a lot of athletes are new to this. They're starting their 5Ks, their 10Ks, their trail half marathons, their sprint distance, their Olympic distance triathlons, their first 100-mile ride, their first Fondo, their first 100K ride. That is all great. Um, and it might not be on an adventure or a race or an um, event. It might be that they're eating healthier. It might be that they're getting more sleep. The key here is to celebrate the direction you're heading and realize that you are putting forth small wins every single day when you keep the mindset of an athlete going. Um, when you are doing the little things that might not show physically in the mirror. They might not show physically in your running pace, your bike pace, your wattages, your swim pace, your other outputs, but they are all moving you in the right direction. A lot of times when athletes are injured or sick, I talk to them about do the things now that will then set up a clearer path for you, a less stressful path, a less overwhelmed path so that when you're healthy, you can train with a, a freer sense that you've gotten a lot of work done or that you've tended to your loved ones or that you've done the little things that, again, create a better path, a clearer path, a less um, obstacle-filled path for you to train. Um, and all that is what I was saying, is celebrate the direction you're heading. Realize that you are on the right path and that this is a good direction to be heading because you, you have that North Star, you know where you want to get to, not necessarily in specific outcomes, but you know you want to be healthier you know you want to become more of an endurance athlete. Maybe your endurance description currently is doing something for 90 minutes or an event for an hour or, you know, climbing a flight of steps is endurance for you. That's totally fine. You're heading in the right direction and taking on an awareness of knowing that you want to be healthier and taking small actions of sleep and nutrition and physical activity and growing upon growing upon growing ever so incrementally. It's the small steps that make the big steps. We all know the cliches, but again, celebrate the direction you're heading. But with that, it also requires a lot of patience. And many of us, um, including myself, have had things come whether it is easier to them or quicker to them in a lot of other areas of their lives. Um, you study a little bit, you pass the test. You apply yourself a little bit, you receive positive feedback. You make some changes in other aspects of your life, you quickly see different outcomes or results. But in fitness and in health and in endurance training especially, but in fitness and health in general, it sometimes takes longer to see those outcomes, right? But that's where you want to keep in mind a very simple, um, not mantra, but statement. And that is, you can't speed up your own progress. It is what it is. If you're doing what you're doing and you're doing the healthy things in order to take that, those steps forward, especially when it comes to health, um, there's very little you can do to speed it up. But there's a lot we can do that will limit, that will slow down our progress. And so a lot of times, 
I would say focus on the things that you're not slowing down your progress. Again, that's what I was saying earlier about less about adding instead about optimizing what you're currently doing. So if there's things that you're doing in your day that are slowing down your progress, your ad adaptation to training or zone two even if you want to get specific about it, there's a lot that can limit that. Your nutrition, your hydration during the day so that that workout is less effective. You're slowing down your progress. Can you speed up your ability to um, get your aerobic platform going? Not really. You sort of got to put in the hours and the work. Those are the hours and the work you just have to put in. And it takes weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months to continue to improve that. There is no shortcut. There is no hack. But there's a lot of things we do. And I can't tell you how many things that I come across when it comes to fitness and training and lifestyle that um, slow down athletes' progress, even, even mine um, in my day. And also in the nutrition world that Emily comes across with seeing little things tidbits as she's analyzing people's days or as I'm analyzing people's flow through their days of what what they're spending time on. All those things are things that are slowing down our progress, usually that we identify. And if you keep that in mind, the athlete's mindset again, are you training or are you exercising? If you're training, you're thinking about the things, will this slow down my progress? If you're exercising, you don't care. There is no alcohol, and not in a negative way that you don't care, but it's because you're not really celebrating the direction you're heading and the focus that you're going towards, and you don't have a specific outcome, a North Star that you're heading towards. You just know you're supposed to exercise. Well, you don't think about what's slowing down your progress. You're thinking more about, well, it's progress. And I talk a lot about, yeah, progression is, is what we're looking for, but many of us know inherently that there's things we do in our day that are slowing our progress. If we can limit that, we already are helping in our, uh, our growth with regards to fitness and health and doing this for a long period of time. So just a little side bit, tidbit there with regards to our training and our lifestyle. All right, last email question of the week, but it's actually one I've gotten two or three on in the meantime. And that is something I've also highlighted in the newsletter about these new events called Last Man Standing. And I've received one, two, three, four actually emails on questions on how to train for them. Um, so one of them is I decided my next ultra endurance challenge will be the last man standing race that takes place in Maine at the end of August of 2019. For those of you that don't know, last man standing events are participants must run 4.1 miles every hour on the hour until there is only one person left. <laughs> so sounds awesome. Quite honestly, I would love to try one of those events. If you're wondering what that sound is in the background, that is pouring rain on my roof. Um, something about this format really excites me. I already can't wait for race day. I'm curious what thoughts you have on preparation, both physical, mental, and logistical for an event like this. I've not really given it too much thought yet, but I'm going to sort of play this out as if you were just asking me in person. Given that there is no defined finish line, and the speed requirements to stay in it are relatively manageable, exactly. 
I'm anticipating 48 to 50 minutes to complete each loop, leaving about 10 minutes to recover and refuel before heading out again. How would training and preparation differ compared to a typical ultra? Um, I have another question up here from Shannon. First of all, thank you so much for your knowledge on blah, blah, blah on the podcast. I'm considering signing up for a last person standing type of race. Last man, last person. I like, I like the change, the female version, last person standing type of race. Um, the rules are, of course, is in this case, 4.5 mile loop in central Oregon, just north of Bend at the Tumalo Canal historic area. I know that area. I've run very long along the Tumalo, Tumalo Canal. Um, there's like a towpath next to it, a narrow one, or it's not a towpath. It's, um, you know, for service vehicles, but you can run pretty long on that. Runners depart every hour on the hour and a half to back start to the finish line, 60 minutes. If you complete the loop in 30 minutes, you have 29 minutes rest. Exactly. The question, I've been thinking about different strategies and the more I research, the more I get confused. Yes, that's what research will do. Um, in general, with research for training, I would just write a different thoughts down and then walk away from it before uh, establishing your own strategy. But anyway, I'm especially interested in how much recovery to I could obtain in 5, 10, or 15 minutes of every hour or a few minutes of rest worth zone 3. If you have any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. That's number 2. And then there's another one here. I just want to make sure I'm covering them all. Um, well, anyway, I don't need to read them all. Um, yes. So last man standing, um, the important thing is to understand, and I didn't read in either one of these, what the terrain is. I've seen last man standing events in like Georgia, where you're basically, there's a, there's a significant hill along the way. Um, and the fact that this one's 4.1 miles every hour and then Shannon's is 4.5 miles um, every hour. It does change the dynamics, of course, if there's a hilly component in there. But, I mean, I guess it doesn't because you just keep going. It just means people can keep going longer without the hill for a longer period of time. So how would I train about for this? Well, um, just like many other endurance events, you first want to build up a platform that can carry you to what you significantly want to reach for. Um, do you think you can run 12 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours? I know that the cutoff on some of these is incredibly long. I think it's even two days or something like that. I know the record, I think, is something like 91 or 92 hours if I'm not mistaken, I'll have to look that up. So the one in Maine I'm just looking up um, looks to be on trail and some moderate elevation gain. So, you know, there's a different um, story on tap here for each one of these. It depends on the terrain as well, but that um, that's something to keep in mind. The other part to keep in mind is... <laughs> The record for the Tennessee one is 283 miles. That's a lot of loops and a lot of hours. So, <clears throat> um, it again, it depends on you, the athlete, how far you think you can go. But in order to train for this, um, 
I would definitely give yourself some simulations. I'm always a big fan of simulations because until you know what the format is and how you can sort of, how your body responds to it, you would want to surely train in a similar standing uh, uh, situation and um, setting. Um, that being said, um, you know, it's also a question of zone two running. And this is where actually I would think the follow-up tests and the check-in tests become really interesting because if you start thinking, well, at zone two on this type of terrain for 4.1 or 4.5 miles, I can run this pace and therefore get this much rest. That's a, that's a space I would start at. So... What that means is if I run four miles at zone two heart rate and I hold, you know, eight minute miles, let's say, well, you know, that 32 minutes and let's say it's trails, let's say nine minute miles, let's be a little bit more realistic. Let's even go simply 10 minute miles because it's, it's, it's trail and there's some moderate elevation gain. So at zone two, I'm getting the ability to get 20 minutes of rest every 40 minutes, um, fuel, hydrate and so forth. The um, aid station that I'm creating has to be very well organized if I'm looking to do this for many, many hours because the, the selection and the choices there will become important. But that's different. Um, that's execution of the race, not training. And then I would observe uh, my ability to do zone two for many, many, many hours. Again, this is a question of burning fat versus sugars, right? And carbohydrates and being in a zone two aerobic place. Um, so you're not, no sugars, primarily fat, right? Let's keep that in mind. A lot of people um, might take that too literally. Um, you're primarily burning fat as your fuel source. You're always burning some glycogen that neither energy system goes away. We've talked about that plenty on the podcast. Um, and then I would work around that. I would know that what happens after 20 miles. I would know what happens after 30 miles and how far my pace slows down and building up the durability for what the time is that I want to train for. A race for. So if I'm thinking realistically, I've never done a 100 miler, for example, or I've never done a 50 miler, or I've never done a 50k, 30 miler, I would start working around those distances to understand, all right, with rest, though, what can I do? And, um, you know, you definitely want to still train your long run per week, just like a 50k, and you want to train your follow up runs with some speed and get that type of fitness down. But then I would also consider um, every, let's say, three weeks, every mini f cycle to do a, um, some simulation of this. No, not a full 12 hours or 14 hours or 16 hours or whatever many hours. I don't know what kind of athletes you are. But I would surely start at 7 a.m. and do a couple of those um, whether it's 10 minutes of recovery or five minutes of recovery or 15 minutes of recovery or even 20 minutes of recovery, um, surely sitting and fueling and then get yourself ready to continue to run. Um, a lot of times in training in general, um, athletes are way too shy and hesitant to stop, not run easy, but to truly stop and rest. I see this with a lot of athletes of mine that I give higher intensity work to, whether at the track or on the bike. And I say, stop, full rest, I have to write out. And even then they do it um, 
haphazardly because they don't want to stop. They don't want to fully rest. But in this case, it's a great way to force yourself to rest because that's what you need to learn to do. But also in order to then truly have the training stimulus that you're looking to have for this event. Um, what else would I do? Um, I would learn what I could eat in those 20 minutes, in those 15 minutes, in those 10 minutes. Um, maybe some training days. And this is, I'm just shooting from the hip here. I would do some training days where I would maybe create a pyramid. And that is run four miles, 15 minutes rest. Rest, not, not jog. Um, then I would run four miles, 10 minutes rest, run mi four miles, five minutes rest, then run four miles back to 10 minutes rest, run four miles back to 15 minutes rest. See how you respond at different rests. Um, maybe I would run four miles, or even if you don't have that type of training hours and time, um, do things like run three miles, take five minutes rest, run two miles, take uh, you know, five minutes rest. I would definitely work around this rest and running piece um, to see how your body responds to re-engaging with running when it gets full rest. Um, I would also consider uh, a variety of ways of incorporating that into my long runs. Let's say I'm going to go for a two-hour trail run. Well, maybe I would do every 15 minutes. Um, I would do something in there where for five minutes, three minutes I rest, Two minutes I go very fast, and then uh, 10 minutes I go easy. Um, again, to, to get the body re used to responding to full rest. Um, so, yeah, it depends on the terrain and it depends on your background and fitness. And this is what I do with a lot of these email questions. And I know uh, at least I'm giving some information, but it really depends on the athlete. And this is just the coaching aspect and why coaching and knowing the athlete and how you respond to the training and your weekly volume and what your other stresses and work and life and family and so are are in order in order to build the training plan that works for you and how you respond to that and grow from that again we talk about this a lot on this podcast so i'm not going to break into that again but yeah for last man standing it is still an ultra marathon and it's different that you get the rest, but eventually you're going to slow down enough that that rest is going to become very limited. And it's more a question of what do we think we're capable of now and how do we train for the new normal and um, prepare around that. I'm not sure if I answered it as specifically as you wanted to, but the last piece I'll say there, <clears throat> because it's an event I'm interested in doing, how would I train for it? Maybe that's the question many of you are wondering. And I would train for it like that. I would train for great endurance platform and aerobic platform in general, you know, two, three, four, five, six hour runs, like I would do for any 50 miler. And then um, see how in my training, maybe every month or every three weeks, I would close out a training phase with a simulation where I would say, okay, I'm going to do eight times four, you know, for the next eight hours, I'm going to do it like this. I would also bring in some overnight stuff um, where I would start at, you know, 4 p.m. and go till midnight, um, where I would start at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. and go until noon. I mean, not all of us have many days available, so that might not be um, worth simulating a full long weekend. 
But again, it depends also. I've looked at a few races. They have different cutoffs. So I don't even know how that would work. If there's a cutoff, how do you know who the last man is standing if there's many people still standing? <laughs> so I don't know enough about the event, but that's how I would train for it. Um, ex uh, outstanding fitness. Um, as I always say, fitter than the course. I would know my loop and know my elevation gain and know the terrain and know the footing. And then I would know how I respond to rest 20 minutes, 10 minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes, because what I might find in my training is that I might drop off from 20 minutes rest per loop, right? Four times 10 minute miles, let's say 45 minutes per loop. So 15 minutes rest. I might fall back to 10 minutes rest or seven minutes rest pretty quickly but I might stay at seven minutes rest for a long time. That might be my sweet spot in pacing and fueling and hydrating. So you would want to understand that prior to the event in order to then maximize your outcome at the event. Um, yeah, again, also when people ask me how would I train for it? Well, I would also train in a lot of these events on what it would take to be in the front of the event, you know, not winning, but more, you know, what the top two or 3% do um, and their time and then work backwards from there of, okay, I should set the expectation that this is about the range I'll be in. So now how would I train for it? And that's why I said early on for the, the, the emailers here, what is, what do you, perceive or have a sense that you will achieve that's realistic and then train for a little bit beyond that because of the rest it's creating a, a different platform um, in this case you know for me can I do 100 miles yes so what's beyond that so maybe 130 maybe 140 miles so that that's maybe a realistic place to be. So that's 25 that's 30 ish 30 not 40 but 30 loops so how do I train for 30 times 4.1 mile loops? Um, <laughs> the funny thing is, on a side note, and many of my athletes know this, but I had an athlete visiting me from Italy this last week, and I went up to train with him along this reservoir that is 4.1 miles around. And in my training for one of my 100 milers, my flat ones, I did a pretty flat 100 miler called Rock Rocky Raccoon a couple years ago. Um, that was actually my first 100 miler. And... Um, I went up to this, this reservoir, parked my truck in training for it, and I ran <laughs> 10 loops in one direction, 10 loops in the other direction, so that I got in an 82-mile training day, um, and it happened to be New Year's Day. And yeah, so talk about being ready for a, <laughs> um, a last man standing. That's where I would probably simulate something where it's trail, where it's familiar, where the footing is good, I could run in the dark, I could park my truck and have food and hydration and music and change in clothes and batteries for <laughs> phone and stuff and just go and do. But yeah, it sounds like a, a, an interesting event. So I hope that helps. Um, if you want more information on how to train for it, that's where um, I've been doing this thing lately. I had a really successful one what I define as successful. Um, the other day with a, a consult, a call with an athlete that 
couldn't really afford the coaching, nor now that I know him more after this consultation, would he have needed the coaching really? Um, he's a busy surgeon in South Africa. And uh, so we set up an hour long call, these, these consultations that I do. And um, he sent me a variety of information about him, his schedule, his um, race plans for the season and um, what his limitations are and when he usually trains and what he's currently been doing. So a pretty detailed write-up of who he is and what he's been doing and what he's getting ready for. And then, yeah, we, we spent an hour on the phone because that's what the consults are, an hour, um, building a training plan for him um, based off, I and mean, that's what he asked for. It was about um, uh, building a training plan. But we went through a week and what he could do and what he should be focusing on and um, open water or pool and when that happens and when he can cycle and his hours. Um, he rarely trains in the morning. He should train more in the morning, but he only finds time at night, but that's not ideal because surgery and family sometimes conflict, so then he doesn't end up training very much at all. So we work through a schedule that he can commit to. And this is why I like the consults because we now created a, a skeleton platform for what he can train. And then in six to eight weeks, I'll check in with him. Um, you know, just a brief email. How's it going? And um, I gave him a few workouts that he can repeat. And then in six to eight weeks, I'll give him some a different flavor of those workouts so that he's not going through many months of the same workouts. I gave him two or three or four swim workouts. I gave him a quality run. I gave him a quality bike. And now in six to eight weeks, if he's been doing them and repeating them and feeling good about that he's gotten in most of it or gotten consistent with it or created a good routine habits around it, then I'll give him some more training um, and diversity in that. That doesn't take me more than you know 10 minutes, but at least there's a follow-up there. And then down the road, hopefully he continues to grow and maybe we'll have another follow-up call or another console call to take him through the second half of the season and towards his first 70.3 in um, December. But the reason I bring that up is, again, that allows me to build a training plan specific to him, I know enough about him and enough about his background to give him true value for that hour-long consult. And um, he can walk away with an action plan, some follow-up in a couple of weeks, in, in a month or two, um, and some interaction there. And then that way, he's not necessarily stuck um, feeling overwhelmed with the, the training plan I've given him but he's getting the value of coaching with a one-hour consult call. So I really like that, and it, I think, is helpful for a lot of people because they are not ready to commit to the coaching yet um, and the daily uh, accountability, but having a structure and a framework in place to go out and try to execute to the best of our ability is, um, is it, again, heading in that right direction, right? celebrating the direction you're heading and doing the little things to increase the likelihood of progress. Um, so, all right. I think that'll be it for this week on the Weekly Word Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I have an email in here, which I'm excited to address, and it'll be a longer topic that I want to go into next week. But that is um, one of the listeners has sent me their lactate 
threshold test and they asked me to break it down versus what they get in the lab. Um, sort of my wording and approach to what I look for in a lactate test and how to break I'd like to uh, do that. So I look forward to doing that next week and uh, diving into a few more training concepts. All right. Have a great week, everybody. It's pouring rain here. Um, but we'll figure that out with regards to training today indoors on the trainer and maybe some gym time. So thank you so much for listening. Um, keep sending me your questions. I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you on episode 103.